Welcome to the FCBC NYC podcast. We're so thankful that you decided to join us in this moment and in this season in your life. Our prayer is that this podcast will be a catalyst for conversion and transformation and that you will be inspired and renewed in such a tremendous way that your desire will be to be your best for God. Again, thank you for listening, and we're excited to see what is next in your life. You know, we ought to get to the place where we can normalize joy more often. We ought to be as joyous out there as we are in here. Yeah, yeah, because there is so much going on out there that is aiming to bring us down, to steal our memory, our memory of what God has done, our memory of what God is doing, he is still making a way. And that's encouraging. And it ought to produce some joy. Pastor Mike, who is not here, but here at one and the same time, I thank you, my brother, for this opportunity and for your friendship and for your uh, your brotherhood. He is my brother from another mother. He is. We have, wow, when we get together, we either have the deepest conversations or we have experiences of gut-busting laughter. And I never know which I'm going to get when I am in his company. To this great staff at FCBC, Reverend Alicia. Amen, amen, amen. Let me thank Reverend Alicia. Let me thank Darnell and Ellis and Dawn and Sharon and Deacon Bell for all that you have done to support uh, my participation in the worship this morning. Um, FCBC, happy Pride Month. Amen. And happy Puerto Rican Day Parade Day. Amen. Close your eyes a moment with me as I pray for this moment. God, we have felt your presence. We know your power. Now we pray that our hearts and our heads are prepared now to hear what your spirit has to teach us. Lord, use my head, my heart, my mind, my mouth to convey to all of these your offspring, some who have come out of habit, yeah, but then there are those who have come desperately seeking to hear your word intervene into their lives. God, we don't know how you did it for others, but do it for us. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O 
Oh, Lord, you are my strength and you are my redeemer. Let the household of God say together, amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Listen, I don't intend to occupy your time along, uh, very long. Uh, and so in that uh, spirit, I'd like to hasten into the morning message and call your attention to the gospel according to St. Mark. Thank you, tech team. Thank you, musicians and, and praise team. Uh, you have been absolutely ridiculous this morning. But I'd love it, friends, if you would uh, join me as um, I turn my attention, my focus, my energies to the gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 8. And I want to read uh, just a few of the verses there, verses 22 through 25 specifically, because... In these verses, if you will be prayerful with me, I want to surface something that has been with me for a little while. And I've, I finally have the opportunity to, to, to get some, some confirmation uh, from you about whether or not what seems to be below the surface here is something that is valuable for our lives. This, um, this passage I am lifting from the New King James Version this morning because there's language here that I am particularly interested. Beginning at verse 22, we read this. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Amen. Have your seats. I see trees. Just like a tree planted by the water. Mm, I shall not be moved. It was one of my mother's favorite hymns. Five years ago on the last day of March, the most amazing mom in the history of the world took her eternal rest 
and flew away from us to sleep in the bosom of the Lord. I miss her. Of course, five years isn't that long ago. So I visit her as often as I am in or nearby Atlanta, Georgia. Next week, in fact, I will fly into uh, Hartsford, Jackson and make the two-hour drive from there to the small Alabama town on the Georgia-Alabama state line, Eufaula, Alabama, where my mom was born and where she now rests. Only I won't spend a great deal of time at the cemetery. Instead, I will go down the road about a mile or so, and there, in an open field, there is a tall, majestic pecan tree where I will go to commune with my mom. That, that tree, which must be decades and decades old, I believe my grandfather planted, but my mother loved and called her friend. Now my mother's death might be written on a headstone in a cemetery, but the shade of that Alabama pecan tree is where the aliveness of my mother's memory dwells. Dense, and palpable like a fog you just don't want to come out of. When I am there, I can still see her. When I am near that pecan tree, I can still hear her voice sing just like a tree planted by the wall. When I am there, I can still feel my mother's presence somewhere around that it's hard to describe the experience. The experience of being near that, that pecan tree, rather, is, is, is so beyond words that, that one would have to be a poet to convey the power and the, and the, and the, the beauty of the experience of being near mom. Pecan tree. There's something about Mark 8, strange as it sounds, that, that reminds me of my mother's pecan tree and, and something so moving and inspired and magical about that tree. Something so powerful and poetic, I can't help wondering if we have not missed something essential in Mark's reflections in chapter 8, this, this biblical episode. I can't help wondering if somehow we might have missed something marvelous that 
the glory and majesty and might and audacity of a Eufaula, Alabama pecan tree might surface for us if we care to consider it in light of Mark's report. Now, the usual takeaway of preachers who've introduced this gripping scene in Mark to preacherly audiences is the presumptuous and dare I say sometimes haughty judgment that some people are just so bad off they need two touches to get it right. We, 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 we approach this text often in that way. And maybe, maybe you know a few people who you think, well, just might need more than that one touch to get where we know they need to be. Usually, though, I think we have tended to, to read this text in the utter absence of imagination. We have... We have treated this text as if someone with a visual impairment couldn't possibly possess the power of poetry in reporting what and how he came to see people differently beyond their blindness, beyond their biases, Beyond their prejudices, as I heard a certain church say. And yet knowing what I know now personally about the power of human tree relations, that seems a rather banal and by now cliched reflection on Mark and the man who was made to see people differently after an encounter with the carpenter. So I want uh, to ask you to consider instead that the virtues and imperative of seeing people differently is at least as urgent as being twice touched. What if, brothers and sisters, we are a witness to a man whose vision is not only gained, but a man whose vision is poetic when it is gained because he's not only seeing people, he is seeing people differently. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that it is incumbent upon us who have had a genuine encounter with our Lord to develop the capacity to see people differently. It's Pride Month. We got to develop the means to see people differently. Here's what I mean and how I see this operating in this text. You see, the scene that is the focus of our attention this morning is but the third scene of the eighth chapter of Mark. 
The first scene begins with a miracle. The miracle involves Jesus and his disciples enabling a miracle. That miracle is the miracle of feeding, in this case, 4,000 people with just seven loaves of bread. There is so much excitement, so much enthusiasm. There are leftovers that remain. And yet in the second scene, when Jesus and the 12 board a small vessel on their way to Bethsaida, the 12 realize that in their enthusiasm, in their excitement, that no one thought well enough, no one thought far enough ahead to collect enough leftovers for Jesus and the 12 to have a meal for themselves as they move from one location to another location. And so a debate ensues. An argument perhaps happens. There's some finger pointing that goes on. You know how we do when things don't work out the way they ought to work out. Someone blames someone else. You know, someone says that somebody else dropped the ball. And so there is a debate. There is a conversation going on. And they're trying to figure out how it is that they could have performed and been a part of such a miracle and yet not have enough foresight to bring leftovers enough so that the master can eat. What was a miracle becomes a debate. What, what was a miracle becomes a supply chain problem. What, what, what was a miracle becomes a sociological analysis. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out where things broke down and overhearing all of this, the master, this is scene two, the master gets a little frustrated. He gets a little annoyed with them and he, he asks them a few rhetorical questions designed to get them to think just a few minutes ago what happened, what, what they were witness to, what they saw. And in his frustration, one of the questions they ask him is, one of the questions he asks them rather is, have you eyes and not see? Now, now he must have remembered his own words when some unspecified crowd of people brought before him a sightless someone and begged that some begged him to give that sightless someone vision he must have remembered that because it seems that he seized upon the opportunity to teach the 12 a lesson that they clearly had not gotten as a result of the miracle they were a part of before they'd even arrived at Bethsaida. In fact, I would submit to you that what he wanted to teach them was that the miracle that they were a party to was not really in the loaves at all. The miracle that they were a party to was in something bigger. The miracle was, and this is why the Lord was a little frustrated with his most intimate friends. The miracle was in this. 
together, we already have what we need to get everything we want. And if we can't find it somewhere around us, it's probably because it's somewhere in us. Everything we need is already among us. Everything we need to be what we want to be, to get where we want to go, we already have the raw materials. You and me, it's in this commons. It's among us. It's in this community, under this roof, on this part of town, in this part of town, among us already committed. It's in this circle. It's our generation in this moment, not a future one. We already have the raw materials we need to achieve and be the change that we want. You ought to look at your neighbor and say the potential's already here. That's the miracle, beloved. That's the miracle. Look again. If we look at one another differently, we will see that that's the miracle. But 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 Jesus's own followers couldn't see it. So he got a little frustrated. Now, as a teacher, I have to confess and um, want to be honest with you. I, I think that Jesus understood in this moment that in his frustration, this probably wasn't his best teaching moment. Have you eyes and can't you see? With a sigh, probably wasn't his best teaching moment, which is why he seized upon the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, to, 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 to demonstrate to them frustration is not a great teacher, y'all. Frustration is not a good instructor, not the best instructor. You see, when uh, an instructor, when a teacher is openly frustrated, that is received by the students as hopelessness. That is received by one students as pointlessness. Because if the teacher doesn't believe in me, then how can I believe in myself? Maybe Jesus understood and rather than harp on what he was frustrated by, he saw the opportunity to teach them about their blindness by giving sight to someone else who had been previously blind. So, so he, begins to, he begins to teach them something and, and he leaves his frustration behind. May I encourage you, brothers and sisters, leave, maybe it's worth leaving some frustration behind. I know you feel it, but, but, but maybe it's worth moving beyond that I, I, oh my goodness, uh, I, I remember just about a month ago, my students had the occasion to hear the legendary Angela Davis, that great civil rights and black power activist on the campus, amen, on the campus of Rutgers University. I had assigned her autobiography to my class and, and they um, said that they would participate, they would go. I said, this is an important opportunity. You ought to get to hear Miss Angela Davis in the flesh. And so 
Miss Davis came and Miss Davis went. And the next day, I was so excited to go to class and ask them what they thought of Miss Davis's uh, uh, lecture. And when I asked them to give me some feedback on the lecture, I couldn't get any love. I couldn't figure out why is it that no one is responding to my to my questions. And then I, I, I asked the question, well, how many of you actually went to see Miss Davis? And not a soul in the room had gone. And I felt my jaws get tight. Heat was rising in my head. But then I felt the spirit say, don't go there. You won't like how it feels. You will ruin the image they have of you in their minds. You will blow all of the good things they might say about you in your course evaluations and the outstanding faculty award you don't even know you're going to get in a month could be in jeopardy. Besides, it's not it's not their fault entirely. There's something they lack. Without it, they could never see the opportunity for themselves that you saw for them. Then I realized that I was expecting something from them, expecting them to appreciate something that they had no living experience, no connection to. I, I, I was expecting something from them that I hadn't fully prepared them for. I assumed that they would think of her the way I thought of her. And yet, one of the things I realized is that they did not have adequate perspective. They didn't have adequate perspective. You know, I think this text teaches something about perspective. Did you notice that the place where blindness is presented as a problem isn't the same place where vision is presented as the solution. The place where the protagonist, our, our, our blind man, was brought isn't the same place where he was delivered. The text says that Jesus took him by the hand and carried him outside of the village. Sometimes, in order to see people differently, you need some distance. You, you, you need some space. You, you need to step back a moment in order to see people differently. Uh, uh, you, you've got to have some room so you can take it all in. You, you need some space so that you can look from a different angle. You might be too close to the problem right now to see others differently, even to see yourself differently. Maybe it's worth adjusting or 
readjusting in order to see oneself differently. You heard that I am a teacher, but in recent years, I have also become very confident identifying myself as a writer. And I didn't know I could be a writer until I moved. I was living in New Jersey and I just moved across the water into the city. It, it, it wasn't a big move, but it was an adjustment nevertheless. And when I moved from New Jersey into New York, I felt a shift. I had some perspective that I didn't have in the previous place. Not, not because there was anything deficient about New Jersey. It was all in me. I had this shift because I was able to find a community of other writers. And I said, mm, this is my tribe. I feel something different. And I began to move as a writer. I began to think as a writer. I became disciplined like a writer. I kept teaching, but now I can declare I'm not only a teacher and a preacher, I'm a writer too. Something changed because I, I, I shifted, I readjusted. I had to have a different kind of perspective. You see, distance assures perspective and all perspective is, is the possibility of seeing differently. I was a teacher then I'm still a teacher, but now I see myself a little differently, not for what I am not, but for who I am. And really all I've come to say this morning, FCBC, is that however much preachers may look down on this sightless man who first saw trees, the truth of the matter is I am a tree. Yeah, I am a tree. He saw me exactly as he needed to. I'm tall now. I'm looking up now. I'm reaching high now. Yes, I am a tree. I'm audacious now. I am stronger now. I'm protective now. I'm fruit bearing now. Yeah, I am a tree. I'm changing every day. I'm growing every day. I, I, I am a tree. I might look like an acorn, but I got a big old oak tree in me, brothers and sisters. I am a tree. And as I look out over this congregation, I see that there are other folk like me who might bend from time to time, but I'm determined not to break. I am a tree and I'll stand if I have to stand by myself. I'm about done at the outset of this message. You heard that I was a college teacher in New Brunswick, perhaps the best known native son of New Brunswick was the early black renaissance man, actor, singer, athlete, lawyer, activist, and race man, Paul Robeson, the singular Paul Robeson. But there's another native son of New Brunswick, born there some 10 years before Robeson, who's remembered less often than Robeson, an Episcopal turned Catholic journalist and poet named Joyce Kilmer. 
Now, you probably don't recognize the name, but I bet you remember his poem, Trees. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray, a tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, whose intimately lives with the rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. It is June 12, 2022. Inside this beautiful edifice of the great FCBCNYC 1912, Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard, New York, New York. And everywhere I look, I see trees. I see trees in the balcony. I see trees on the floor. I see trees in the band. Everywhere I look, I see trees, black trees and brown trees and white trees, Asian and African and European trees. I see trees, y'all, straight trees and queer trees. I see trees and every one of you look like poems. I see native trees and transplanted trees. I see uptown trees and downtown trees. I see saplings and senior trees. I see cherry blossoms and a few weeping willows. I see trees whose limbs have been lopped off, but you're still standing. Everywhere I look, I see trees. And there's something about the trees that God has planted at FCBC. You just look different. And maybe that's because you are different. Look around. Don't you see trees? With all the trees in the building, just, just wave your hand. Oh, you look like trees now. Blessed be the name of our God. From one tree to another. God bless you. God keep you. God love you. Thank you for listening to the FCBC NYC podcast. We hope that what you heard was informative and inspiring and in some way created a space for you to have a creative encounter with God. You can follow us on social media and on the internet at fcbcnyc.org. Please follow and also contribute. If you've been blessed by what you heard, support us financially that we may continue to offer these podcasts. Thank you again, and we look forward to you tuning back in in the future.